take your Bibles now and turn to the passage that Lee uh, led us in, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 20 through 27, but our primary focus will be on verses 24 through 27. We come now to an interesting part of God's Word, Uh, one of the most important passages in God's Word, but also one of the most controversial. Um, As I begin this morning, I just want to address those who are watching online. Uh, We're grateful for all of our church family who are able to join us in one way or another on a Sunday morning. But there are many who watch us online every week who are not within the Hamilton area. They don't belong to uh, what we would call the West Highland family. But we wanna, I want to uh, just uh, thank many of you who watch from various places, many in the greater Toronto area, other parts of Ontario, uh, throughout our province and nation, and even in other parts of the world. I just want to thank you for your faithfulness in joining us. And um, I trust that this ministry has been a great blessing to you. We are grateful that you join us. How many of you have ever heard of the books that are called For Dummies? Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, uh, there's some of them on the screen, How to Fix Everything. Uh, it's, it's, it's an excellent series of books, actually. Uh, you know, um, Marketing for Dummies, Stock Investments for Dummies, Philosophy, Chemistry. You can go on with almost any topic. The end is, listless, is, is endless. And uh, these, these books are actually very, very helpful. They're kind of written in layman's terms. So it doesn't matter what the, the topic is, they introduce it to you. Sort of like Cole's Notes that used to be there in the past, but very, very helpful books. I don't know about you, but I, I think wouldn't, I'm assuming that you would agree that wouldn't it be great if there was a book called Prophecy for Dummies? Yeah. And uh, if you uh, would, would want to purchase a copy of that, I would join you in that. Because there are many times when I feel that I'm out of my depth in terms of understanding certain prophecies that are in God's Word. And uh, we would not be alone. Because throughout the history of the church, there have been great scholars, theologians, pastors, who have often scratched their heads and felt that they were out of depth as they were reading certain portions of God's Word. They have struggled. In the year uh, 400 A.D., um, a well-known church father by the name of Jerome, who was a, an outstanding scholar and an excellent linguist, uh, he came to Daniel chapter 9 and was making some comments on it, particularly verses 24 through 27. And he wrote this, Because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church, And to set one above the other, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. And then he listed nine different opinions from the great teachers of the church, and he said that he was unable to decide which one was right. Uh, Many of you know Alexander Begg and Truth For Life. He's the pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland. And uh, recently, and by recently I say probably in the last 10 years, he did a a series in the book of Daniel, and when he came to this particular passage, he prefaced his sermon with these words, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening. (laughs) 
And then he added, what I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. I feel very much the same and can relate to his words. I say this to you uh, by no means of exaggeration at all. I have probably spent from before Christmas until today about 120 hours just studying verses 24 through 27. Read through 15 books, 15 commentaries on this passage. Have read numerous articles and theological blogs on it. And I must confess that the ancient saying in God's word is true. Much learning maketh thee mad. (laughs) One thing you need to understand about pastors is as pastors prepare messages, we go to books which we call commentaries. And these are written by great scholars. And over time, pastors develop a friendship with these scholars. It's not that we can speak to them in person, but we, we have our favorite commentaries, we have our favorite authors, we have those books that, that we, over time, have discovered to be the most meaningful and helpful in our study of God's Word and preparing messages that would be, we would bring on a Sunday morning. I consider them to be my friends, and, and some of them are actually my friends because some of these commentators are alive, and I know them personally as friends. What's troubling to me then about my friends is that quite often they don't agree with each other, and um, they don't agree with me. That's troubling. Um, they don't agree with each other, And I find what troubles me even more is sometimes I find myself even disagreeing with myself. So how do we approach Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27? Well, to help us in our understanding, there are three things that I want to talk about as as a little bit of a preface. And no need to put this on the screen right right at the moment, guys, but let let me just give a synopsis of what I'm doing, and then we can go to the screen. These are three things that I think are foundational to understanding all of God's Word, but particularly when we come to a passage that is somewhat obscure or enigmatic as Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27 is. The first is we need to consider the context in which this particular passage is found. Context is everything. We all know what it is to take something out of context. There's been a lot of that going on in the last 48 hours. It's all over the media where things are taken out of context and arguments are built around one line that a person says to discredit the whole of what a person is saying and we don't understand what he's really saying because we don't understand the context in which it is said. So understanding context is a critical thing. Understanding the context of Daniel 9 sheds light on its meaning. The second is there is an important lens of interpretation that we need to bring to Daniel chapter 9. This lens of interpretation is like putting a a set of glasses on, and when you put that set of glasses on, immediately it becomes clearer for you, and the glasses or the lenses that I'm talking about are the lens of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that Jesus wore glasses. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that these lenses are Christ, and as we look at Scripture through the lens of Christ, we actually discover what the passage says concerning him. The third thing is that we need to focus on what is central and clear in the passage, not on what is complex or confusing. So let's go to the screen now, and we'll go to this first preface point, and we're just going to review the context in which this 
this prophecy of 70 weeks or 77s is actually given. So we're going back to last Sunday morning. We're going back to the beginning of chapter 9. And you remember Daniel was having his quiet time. He was reading scripture and he was praying. And I pointed out to you last Sunday morning that there were two particular passages in Jeremiah that he was reading, Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29. I'm sure he read so much more. He wouldn't have just, you know, cherry-picked out of God's Word. He read so much more. But in chapter 25 and chapter 29, Jeremiah is talking about the fact that the captivity in Babylon is going to last for a period of 70 years. And then God is going to restore his people to their land and they'll go back to the city. So Jeremiah 25 and 29. Now, what is important to note here is that in the middle of Jeremiah chapter 29, where it talks about this 70-year period, there's actually a verse in God's word that almost every single one of you, if you've been a Christian for a period of time, you already know this verse. You may have quoted it. It's a very, very meaningful verse. It's Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, we often claim that verse for ourselves, and there is an appropriateness to that, but please understand that that promise in Jeremiah 29 was given to those who were in exile. It was given to people like Daniel. They were finding it difficult living in this ancient empire. But God said to them, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you. In other words, God was saying, I am not going to abandon you. There is a future for you. There is a plan. That's a key word. There is a plan. God has a plan. So Daniel now is pondering the math. He realizes he's been in Babylon now about 66 or 67 years. So he realizes that the first part of the prophecy of being restored is about to be fulfilled. The 70 years are going to come to an end. So now he's motivated. He's motivated to pray. And he prays that the second part of the prophecy will be fulfilled. And that is that the people will be restored to the land and Jerusalem will be rebuilt as well as the temple that had been leveled to the ground. Now, I want to just add one other thing here about Daniel reading because I'm convinced he would have read on past chapter 29. He would have read the whole book, of course, but he would have come to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to put that on the screen because Jeremiah would, or Daniel would have read these words. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people for for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So this is the new covenant that Jeremiah promised or God promised through the, the uh, prophet. The point I'm trying to make is this, and I think it's critical to understanding Daniel chapter 9. This is what Daniel was praying about. He was praying about this new covenant transformation where God would put his law in their hearts. Daniel was confessing the sins of his people because he knew that they had broken the covenant. 
and he was praying that they would be restored in covenant relationship with the living God. And so the answer that comes to Daniel then has everything to do with what Daniel is praying about. So look at Daniel 9, verse 20 through 23. Daniel's speaking, he's praying. Verse 20, he's confessing the sin of the people. Verse 21, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel the man, he's described as a man, but clearly he's an angel because he comes in swift flight. In case you don't know, human beings can't fly. It's definitely an angel. He comes about, and he comes at the time of the evening sacrifice, verse 21. 22, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight um, and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. So the answer to prayer was immediate. Uh, Daniel is not even up off of his knees, so to speak, before he hasn't even finished his prayer, and Gabriel comes in swift flight. This is amazing. This tells us a lot about what happens in terms of the dynamics of prayer. You might labor in prayer at times. You might find prayer a real hard thing to do. Listen, I'm with you in that. But please understand, while you're praying, behind the scenes, something is taking place. Two Sundays from now, we're going to deal with that in chapter 10. Now, I'm just going to go down a rabbit trail for just a moment. I promise the rabbit trail will be brief. But look at verse 21. Gabriel comes to him at what point in time? This, this jumps, jumps out at us, actually. He comes about the time, it says, of the evening sacrifice. Now, why would Daniel include that little bit of information there? When had Daniel last observed an evening sacrifice as a Jew in exile living in Babylon? Seventy years before, there had been no evening sacrifice for almost 70 years because the temple was destroyed. The Jews were unable in their period of exile to offer any kind of sacrifice at all, but Daniel knows when the time of the evening sacrifice is. Because you can take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of Daniel. Now think about that and think about yourself. So that's just a little rabbit trail. You don't have to pay me for that. Let's come back to the main, the main point. The main point is that Gabriel now comes. He is sent to Daniel as proof that God has answered his prayer. Gabriel comes and says to him, 70 weeks or 77s are decreed. And Gabriel says to Daniel, I'm going to give you understanding about these 70 weeks. Point is this, what Daniel is praying about is what the answer is all about. This is the context. The specific answer that comes is an answer that comes to Daniel about the things that are on Daniel's heart. Remember, he's praying about restoration. He's praying, the con he's confessing sins. He's praying about the covenant that has been broken. And so God gives him insight into what the 70 weeks is going to be about. And what the 70 weeks is all about is a plan that God has to rescue his people out of Babylon and to restore them into covenant relationship. So that's the first thing. We have to think about the context. It helps us to understand. Secondly, is the lens of Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? In the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus has risen from the dead, 
Luke records for us that Jesus is walking on a road with two of those who followed him. And these two are distressed. And the scripture tells us that, that the Lord Jesus opened their minds to understand. And then the scripture tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that would have included Daniel. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Dan, Daniel, Jesus explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus said this on another occasion where he said, these are the scriptures which testify about me. The scripture is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. We have this in our confessional statement where it's where it stated, the Bible's ultimate focus is the person and work of Jesus Christ in his first and second coming. And hence, no portion of the Bible, no portion of the Bible, even the Old Testament, is fully understood until it leads to him. So with the lens of Christ, we come to Daniel 9, not to find all kinds of complex and confusing stuff. It's there in the passage for sure. But with the lens of Christ, we come to find Jesus. So the context is important. Seeing the scripture through the lens of Christ is important. And the third thing is, we need to look for what is central and clear. There's a, a wonderful commentary. I, I borrowed it from Pastor Ken, um, written by Ian Duguid, and I, I found his insights amazing. And he, he writes this, the key to understanding the vision is to focus on what is central and clear rather than what is challenging and complicated. He says if we do that, the central message is clear. It is not difficult to see. Are there difficulties here in this passage? Of course, but we can still understand the thrust of what is being said. So I'm not going to bother you or even make a lot of reference this morning to that which is challenging or complicated or confusing. I want to focus in on what is central and clear. Mysteries here? Yes, but there are obvious truths and you can't escape what they're saying. So this is very important because Daniel 9 is Scripture. Daniel 9 is scripture breathed out by God the Holy Spirit. And therefore it is useful for teaching, for uh, correcting us, for rebuking us, for training us in all righteousness. This scripture, this prophecy was given to Daniel so that he would understand. That's exactly what Gabriel says to him. I've come to help you understand. So from the context and from Christ and from what is central in this passage, it is clear that what is being spoken of here is a promise of a rescue, that God has a plan to rescue his people and that that plan involves the Christ. So let's go to our first point. God has a plan to rescue his people. Look at Daniel 9 again. I want you to notice the word decreed. Look at verse 24. Seventy-sevens or 70 weeks are decreed. Decreed. Go down now to the end of verse 26. Desolations have been decreed. Look at the last line of verse 27. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The passage is about a decree. It's about a plan. It's about a word from God. Now remember, remember this. God has his desires and God has his decrees. His desire is that you will obey him and follow him. 
but he has not necessarily decreed that. You follow what I'm saying? In other words, what God desires is, what diff- is, is very different from what God decrees. When God decrees something, it happens. And God has decreed a plan. Now verse 24 gives us a summary of this plan. It's a sort of an umbrella statement that is made here. Or to put it in an, another way, verse 24 is this bird's eye view of what the 70 weeks of years is all about. Let's talk first of all now about the time of his plan. Because the word 70 is used, it says 70 sevens. Some translations will say 70 weeks. So what does this actually mean? Well, 70 sevens or 70 weeks means that there are 70 weeks of years. Now a week is seven days, so we're talking about a seven-year period. There are 70 of these seven-year periods of time. Now, 70 times 7 then takes us to 490 years. That's important, but what is more important is not so much the chronological expanse of time, 490 years approximately. What is most important is that 70 sevens, or 70 times seven, 490 years, is actually very symbol-laden. In other words, a symbol is being used here to convey to us an incredible truth. You remember Peter when he went to a Jesus and he said to Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? What did Jesus say? Most English translations say 77 times, Jesus responded. But what Jesus actually said was, no, 70 times seven. That's 490 times. What is the point that's being made there? That you can forgive someone 490 times, but if they sin one more time, you don't have to forgive them? Of course not. That's not the point that's being made. He he rounds it out. In other other words, you just keep on forgiving. So so it's symbol-laden. There's symbolism in these words. This is a symbolic number. Now, seven, according to the Bible, we know from the the Bible that, that seven is the number of completion. How many days did it take for God to create the world? In a seven-day span, God created the world. He completed his creative acts in seven days. He completed it. It's the number of completion. Ten, we know, is the number of fullness. What is the fullness of the number, the totality of the number of the commandments that God has given us? Ten. Those ten speak of the fullness of God's command. Therefore, seven times ten is referring to then a complete period of time. But 70 weeks of years is much longer. It is seven times ten times seven. In other words, it is a complete, full, perfect period of time. Think of Galatians chapter four. We quote it almost every Advent season. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. In the complete period of time, it happened. It happened exactly at the time that God determined it would happen. That's what's being said here. So it's important then that we not look upon this as, as, as an exact measure of the length of time, but rather we, we see these 70 weeks of years as conveying to us some incredible important truths. Now, we're, we're going to put up on the screen right, right at the moment, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 
And let me read this. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the king of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. I want you to focus on the word Sabbath. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested. The desolation was 70 years. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So during the 70 years of captivity, the land of Israel enjoyed its Sabbath. The land rested for 70 years. It was desolated, but it rested. Now, now this is an important passage because what this passage does is it connects this 70 years of exile in captivity with the principle of the Sabbath years. I know we're getting into some technical stuff. We'll be out of the technical stuff soon. Hang in there. Bear with me. The Sabbath function then is a sign. A sign of a a coming year, a, a coming age. The age of the Messiah. When the redemption and restitution and rest would happen. If you have time this this afternoon, read Hebrews chapter 4. Talks all about the significance, the spiritual, symbolic significance of the Sabbath. Now, Gabriel gives to Daniel then the 77's framework. Not because he was desiring to give Daniel a specific date in which this would happen, rather, he wanted to give Daniel a framework of Sabbath years that are filled with symbolic importance. Now think about this. Why didn't God just say there'll be 77s, or sorry, 37s, or 57s, or 87s, or 107s, or 127s? Why, Why this focus on 77s? It takes us to Leviticus chapter 25. And uh, this may be a passage that you don't read very often because most of us skip this book, but there's some really good stuff in it. Count off seven Sabbaths of years. There's that idea, the Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land, consecrate the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. A jubilee. He talks here about the year of jubilee, and we know from other portions in God's Word that when that, that jubilee year came, After seven Sabbaths, slaves were released, debts were canceled, the the land would lie fallow for a year. And the Jubilee year was all about justice coming and equity and freedom and pardon and release and restoration. And this was what was emphasized in the Jubilee year. This was what was experienced by God's people. In other words, the years of Jubilee signaled a new beginning. This was the inauguration of renewal. The jubilee became a symbol and a foreshadowing then of the redemption which is coming at the end of time. It becomes a symbol of the final day of salvation when the Messiah himself will inaugurate what is described as the year of jubilee. 
So it's important now that we see that these 70 years that are decreed are a period of 77s of years. In other words, there is exactly 10 Jubilee eras. And these 10 Jubilee eras are pointing to the year of Jubilee in which redemption and restoration will take place. Now there's the technical stuff. Now why is it so important that I focus on that for a moment? Because in Luke chapter four, Jesus, after being tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, goes into the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth and someone puts in his hands the scroll to read. And Jesus gets up and he opens the scroll and it rolls open to Isaiah chapter 61. And in Luke chapter 4, we read that this is what happened. Jesus took the scroll and he read it again from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom. There's the Jubilee idea, freedom. Recovery of sight for the blind, more of the Jubilee idea. To release the oppressed. That's exactly what the year of Jubilee is all about. And then Jesus concluded with these words, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee. And what did Jesus do next? Luke tells us he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, everyone's eyes in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus at this point, and he added these words, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, that was a significant moment. In the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the ultimate year of the Jubilee is fulfilled. So get this, when Jesus declared that in him the year of the Lord's favor had arrived, the year of the Jubilee had arrived, he was saying the 70 weeks of Daniel have now reached their climax, their climax in me. That all of the past jubilees were nothing more than a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of the person and the ministry of Jesus. This is the framework of 10 jubilees, 70 weeks, not designed to establish precise chronological parameters, but rather to serve as an image that in Jesus, God will work to bring about the final jubilee. Now this brings us to the next point, and that is the goal of God's rescue plan. The goal of God's rescue plan. We find this in verse 24. Keep in mind that there are two parts to this. We don't have the time for this today, but if we went to Isaiah chapter 42 and Isaiah chapter 43, it becomes very, very clear that there are two parts to this. There is the physical part, that is the actual physical return of God's people to Jerusalem. But there is also the spiritual part, and that is God's people returning to the Lord and having restored this covenant relationship that they had violated. Remember, the first part, getting the people out of Babylon into Jerusalem is just part of it. The second part is getting Babylon out of the hearts of the people. And we talked about this before. You can get the people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? And the second part deals with this very thin thing.
It deals with sins. It deals with forgiveness. It deals with reconciliation. Getting the people just simply back to the land, returning from the exile, that's, that, that in, in essence took a short time. But the real return of bringing the people back into the covenant relationship with God, that would take 77s of time. So in verse 24, six things are actually listed here. And notice what, notice what Daniel says or what Gabriel says to him. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Six things are going to happen. He says here, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to one, finish transgression, two, put an end to sin, three, to atone for wickedness, four, to bring in everlasting righteousness, five, to seal up vision and prophecy, and six, to anoint the most holy, to anoint the most holy. Now, as I read those to you, what immediately came to your mind? You see, if, if you were a Sunday school teacher in our church, and you were teaching kids downstairs about Jesus week in and week out and week in and week out, and about the significant things that Jesus did when he was here on this earth, if you were to read these verses to a Sunday school child, immediately that Sunday school child might not understand everything that's being said, but he's going to come to one conclusion. If you say, who's this about? What's this all about? They're going to say, that's about Jesus. That's about Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson writes, it is almost instinctive to the New Testament Christian to see in these statements a prophecy of the work of Christ. These six things are all about Jesus, and I agree. Through the lens of Christ, then, we, it brings clarity to us. Now, the first three goals that are mentioned here, um, finishing transgression, putting it into sin, atoning for wickedness, these are the very things that Daniel was praying about. He talked about sin. Go back and read his prayer. He talked about sin, transgression, and wickedness. Gabriel comes to Daniel now, and he says, look, in, these, in the 70 weeks of years, in this 490 approximately period of time, God is going to do this. He's going to deal with this. And so when we take a phrase like, to put an end to sin. To put an end to sin. That takes us immediately to Hebrews chapter 9 where, where the writer to the Hebrews practically, practically borrows the same words and he writes in verse 27 that Christ appeared at the end of the ages. To do what? To put away sin. To put an end to sin by the sacrifice of himself. And when did that happen? It happened at the end of the ages. Again, there's almost a reference here to the ninth chapter of Daniel. And then the, the verse that says here, to atone for iniquity. We think immediately of Romans 3 where God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Or 1 John 2, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The next line, to bring in everlasting righteousness for, for those whose sin has been atoned for. We think immediately of Romans chapter 6 where, where it says that Christ came to die for our sins in order that through him we would die to sin and be raised to a new life of righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. Well, well 
Vision and prophecy are no longer needed now that Jesus has come. There's no longer a need for further visions about Jesus or prophecies about Jesus because all of the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus, both in his first and his second coming. Jesus is God's last word. In the past, God spoke to the prophets through many different ways, it says in Hebrews 1. But in these last days, at the end of the ages, he has spoken to us in his Son. And we read that verse in 1 Corinthians where, Corinthians where Paul says that in Jesus, all the promises of God have been fulfilled. They've all been received. They are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So every Old Testament prophecy climaxes in Jesus. Every Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. This brings us to the last phrase that is mentioned here, which says, to anoint the most holy. To anoint the most holy. Some translations say the most holy place. And I'm going to bring us now into the third point that I want you to consider, the third sub-point sub here, and that is the person of God's rescue plan to anoint the most holy. Now, you may have some translations which just simply say most holy. Others may say most holy one, or others may say the most holy place. And so this is one of these complexities, one of the confusing things. Are we talking here about a person, or are we talking here about a place? The big debate is, is this Jesus, or is this the temple? And it's, it's somewhat of a, if I can be so bold as to say, it's a little bit of a crazy debate because we know that the most holy is a reference to the holy of holies. And you remember in our Exodus series, we talked about the tabernacle and the holy of holies, the most holy place and the furnishings within there, that that was considered the most holy place. In Exodus, what did we see though? We saw that Jesus came to fulfill everything that the Holy of Holies represents. And so in John's Gospel, John begins by saying that, 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 that Jesus has tabernacled among us. He's dwelt among us. Jesus is that temple, and we beheld his glory, the same glory that came into the tabernacle, which filled it in, in Exodus. It's is the same glory that resides within Jesus. Listen, friends, Jesus is the temple. He is the temple. He said, destroy this temple in the three days. I will build it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body, but Jesus is the temple. He fulfills everything about what the temple was. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How did you get to God in the Old Testament era? You came through the temple. How do you get to God now today? You come to God through Jesus. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where, where, where God meets with people. I'm going to say more about that in just a few minutes. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now we come to our second point, and that is that God has a plan to rescue his people. This is part two. Part two. Now we're given a detailed look. So I invite you now to come with me to verse 25. Daniel 9, verse 25. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Holy One, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now it wouldn't have been so much easier if he just said 69. See, this is apocalyptic writing. It's, it's different from how you and I write. It's, it's a form of, it's a genre of literature in the ancient world. And so it's put into 
seven sevens and then 62 sevens, and we do the math, and we know it's 69 sevens. It's a total of 69 weeks. What's he saying here in verse 25? From the issuing of the decree, remember Cyrus the king gave the decree that they could go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So this happens around Daniel's time. So beginning there, until the anointed one comes, the anointed one, I believe, is the Christ, the ruler, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So let's take the first seven years first. And, and, and it's talking here about the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. The city is going to be destroyed, verse 25, or uh, restored. It's restoration and rebuild. Those are the two key words. And friends, if you read the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, it takes you into that period of time. I would be so bold as to say that is the first seven weeks of years. And during this time, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt. Now notice that, that Gabriel adds a point here. He says at the end of verse 25, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble... Read the book of Nehemiah to find out about those times of trouble. This was a troublesome time for God's people. Difficult time. But the first seven sevens, the city is going to be rebuilt. Now that takes us to the next 62 weeks. And I think the next 62 weeks are still referred to in this phrase, in a time of trouble. In a time of trouble. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Okay, so what are the next 62 weeks? Well, the next 62 weeks were really a very, very troubling time for God's people of the past because after Babylon had fallen and the 70-week period now, 70 weeks of years begins, uh, we have a very troubled time because Persia comes to power. Persia then falls. The Jews go back to their land, but Persia falls. What happens next? We saw this a number of weeks back as we were in Daniel 8. Then the Greeks come up, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great brings his Greek armies into the Middle East. He brings Babylon to its knees. He occupies the city of Jerusalem. He conquers more than perhaps any man in history has ever conquered before. But Alexander dies suddenly. And there's a division. The, the Greek empire is divided into four Greek king. Uh, king, king, kingdoms at this point in time and the two dominant ones were in Egypt and Syria and so Israel now even though the city's been rebuilt Israel sandwiched between these two empires that are constantly at war with each other it's like Israel becomes the battleground in which the wars go on but these are Greek empires and so Greek way of thinking and Greek thought and Greek language is spreading throughout all that part of the world and then out of the four king, 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 kingdoms, there comes one final one, and he is Antiochus Epiphanes. And we talked about him because he is a forerunner of the Antichrist who is to come. And he persecutes the Jews for literally three and a half years, and he commits the abomination of desolation when he takes a pig and he sacrifices it in the restored temple in Jerusalem. He sacrifices it sacrifices it to the Greek god Zeus. And then finally, what happens next? Well, the Greeks fall apart and the Romans come in in the year 63 B.C. And so while the city is restored, the city is still occupied. And all of these 62 weeks are simply setting the stage for the next step in God's 
rescue plan for his people. So we come now to the final 70th week, and the subtitle there is that Christ will come. Uh, Verse 25, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Then notice verse 26, after the 62 sevens, which means actually after 69 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, after 62 weeks means then that what we're going to have now is a description of what's going to happen in the 70th week. Now, there are three things that are going, are going to happen. But before we talk about these three things that are going to happen, I want you to notice that the phrase anointed one is used twice in the passage. Verse 25, until the anointed one. Verse 26, the anointed one will be cut off. I just want to park here for just a moment. Remember I said I was going to come back to the phrase to anoint the most holy. Okay, you've got anointing the most holy, and you've got anointed one two times. So a derivative of the word anoint is used three different times. I think it's clear that we're not talking about a place. We're talking about a person. It's a person. He's a ruler. He's cut off. It cannot be a place. To anoint the most holy place then is to anoint the most holy one. Do you remember what Gabriel, interestingly, Gabriel here in this passage shows up in Luke chapter 1, remember? When Mary conceives and the angel Gabriel comes to, to her and he says, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you and the child that will be born to you will be Holy. At the baptism of Jesus, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended upon him, remember? He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Peter makes reference to this in the book of Acts, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And in the Gospel of Mark, in the opening of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes into a synagogue and there's a demonized man there. And the demon cries out from within this man, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Why does it happen in Mark 1, right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus? Because Mark wants to emphasize that God has anointed the most holy and has brought him into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll also notice in verse 25, it says that this anointed one is a ruler. In some translations, it says prince. there's, There's a regal tone to the word that is used here. We have the idea of kingship. Now, what happened then when Daniel was taken away into captivity and Jerusalem was destroyed. Something happened that is very important. No longer was there a king on Israel or Judah's throne. King was gone. And the kings were always followed in the line of David. They came from David. So for 70 years, a 70 year period goes by and there's no descendant of David on the throne because the throne, as it were, is no more. So it seems, so it seems. Now the Jews go back to the land. They're back there for seven weeks, then for 62 weeks, 69 weeks, 483 years, whatever it is. It's a fairly long period of time. And they're able to restore the city. They're able to rebuild the temple. They're able to survive. But the one thing they can't do is get a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem. They can't, they can't, they can't do it. Doesn't happen. And so now we come right to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel comes to Mary 
And what does the angel say to Mary? The one who's born to you will be holy, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. You see, they couldn't restore the king to the kingdom, but this is telling us that God himself restores the king in the 70-week period. Now, I said there are three things that are going to take place, and we're going to have to move very rapidly now. I want you to notice in verse 26, it says that the anointed one will be cut off. He will be cut off. This happens during the 70th week. He is, he's cut off. And the, the language here to be cut off refers to a, a violent death. Think of Isaiah chapter 53, for he was cut off from the land of the living. That's Jesus. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now verse 26 says, and he will have nothing. And if you have a new international version, if you go down to the bottom of the page, you'll notice there's a footnote there, and it says that he will have nothing could also be translated as he but not for himself. He will be cut off. He'll be crucified, but not for himself. In other words, his death is not for himself. His death is for others. His death is a vicarious death. It is for his people. He dies in their place. He provides atonement for them. He is broken for our brokenness. Now remember, Daniel is in his quiet time in prayer. The 70 years, they're going to return. And so Daniel in prayer, as it were, he, he's, kind of, he's climbing the mountaintop. He's climbing the mountaintop, and he can see that the, the, at the top of this mountain, that the, that the 70 years is almost over. But when he gets to the top of the mountain of the 70 years of exile, and he looks out, he sees that there's another mountain peak. And on that mountain peak, he sees the outline of a cross. For the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. He will die for others. Now notice what else it says in verse 26. Because at the same time that the Messiah is cut off and dies for others, not for himself, at the same time there's another ruler that's mentioned here. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is where some of the confusion comes because is this the same ruler as the ruler that's already been mentioned? But I'm convinced that the grammar would bear it out that, that no, this is another ruler. Another ruler comes and he destroys the city and the san san sanctuary. Now, I, can I get technical again? Verse 26 and 27, don't read them in a linear way, okay? Don't read them in a chronological way. Read them as parallels to each other. So the first part of verse 26 is the same almost as the first part of verse 27. And the second part of verse 26 is the same as the second part of verse 27. They should be understood as parallel statements that are being made here. It's not sequential, it's not linear, it's parallel with each other. In other words, it's not A, B, C, D, but it's A, B, and then you go back to A again, and then B. Do you follow what I'm, do you follow what I'm saying? So the second thing that happens, we're, we're going to talk about this destruction of the city in just, in just a moment, but the second thing that happens, if you go now to the first line of verse 27, 
He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, but in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. There, 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 there it is. I think this is a reference again to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The pronoun he that is being used here goes back now to the anointed one of verse 26. He's the main subject of what is being said here. And so the anointed one, Jesus, is going to confirm a covenant. Not make one, but fulfill it or confirm it or uphold it. He's going to make good on the promise that God had originally intended. And I think this is the new covenant that Jesus spoke of. Jesus, or the writer of the Hebrews, refers to it as the the eternal covenant covenant in Christ's blood. You remember at the Passover, Jesus took bread. He took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So if we take verse 26, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing, and tie that in now with verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, but in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. What are we actually seeing here? There are parallel statements that are being made here. The anointed one, Jesus, will be cut off in death, but he will bring about a confirming of the covenant that God has made, the covenant of grace, and he will make that covenant with the many, it says, with the many. That's a key word in this passage. Because if you go back now and you think of the life of Jesus, in Mark 10, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served or to serve. Sorry, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the many, he said, for the many. In Luke 22, he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, every time you take the cup and the bread and you read the words of Jesus, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, you are going right back to Daniel 9, verse 27. He will make a covenant in the 70th week. Now I want you to notice the next phrase in verse 27. The next phrase is that in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. You remember what what happened in the temple when Jesus died? You remember how that temple was ripped from the top to the bottom? That was God's way of saying, the sacrifices are over. The one final sacrifice has been made for the sins of the world and no need for temple sacrifices any longer. We no longer come to God through the temple. We come to God through the one that the temple pointed to. He is Jesus, and no one can come to the Father except through him. Now, this brings us to the third and the final thing that will happen in the 70th week. It says here that the city will be destroyed. So look at the second part of verse 26. The people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the, sanct- the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Now look at the second part of verse 27. And one who causes desolation will place abominations on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. These are two parallel statements that are being made. Daniel is being shown. Now get this. He wanted to see the city restored. And Daniel is being shown here that the city in the 70th week will again be destroyed. And Jesus referred to this himself. You remember in Matthew 24, he walked out of the temple courts. He and the disciples looked at the amazing building that was there. And, uh, and they asked about it. And Jesus said, 
Not one of the stones that you see here will be standing in the end. He made reference of the destruction of the city. And 40 years after Jesus was cut off, 40 years after the covenant was made and secured, the temple and the city was destroyed. And the one who did it was the Roman general Titus. Verse 26, the end will come like a flood, war, desolations are decreed. The magnitude of the devastation is being described here. Jesus said that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. He was referring to this event that happened in 70 A.D. As God permitted the Babylonians to destroy the city and the temple, So 40 years after the death of Christ, he would allow the Romans to do the same. But this included what is said in verse 27, and one who causes desolation will place abomination on the wing of the temple. And what is that a reference to? Well, certainly it's a reference to to Titus. But, But before he destroyed the temple, Titus did exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes had done 167 years, sorry, about 200 years before Titus took a pig and he sacrificed it to the Roman god Jupiter. And Jupiter is the Roman name for the Greek god Zeus. He did exactly what Antiochus did. It was a sacrilege. It was an abomination of desolation. And notice what will happen to, what happened to Titus. One who causes desolation will place abominations on a wing of a temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And nine years after Titus had committed this sacrilege, he died a horrific death. So friends, I've taken you on a very, very long journey in a very brief passage this morning, and you have been very, very patient. What we see here is that Gabriel revealed that the first part of this, in this first part of this last week, the Messiah would be killed, A covenant would be made, Jerusalem would be destroyed, and the desolator of Jerusalem would be judged. The six goals of God's plan were accomplished through the Messiah, Jesus. Now, I know some of us may look at this and kind of object a little bit to what I'm saying, because as you look at verse 24, you might say, well, yeah, I get the first part about you know, putting it into sin, atoning for wickedness, but we've got this line here, bring in everlasting righteousness. And in verse 24, in some ways, sounds like this is talking about the second coming of Jesus. But keep this in mind. We cannot separate the first coming from the second coming. And what I mean by that is they're all a part of the salvation that God has brought in in the Jubilee year. The Jubilee was started when Jesus came. The jubilee will be consummated when Jesus returns. At his first coming, he inaugurated the jubilee year. At his second coming, he will consummate that jubilee year. What Jesus has inaugurated, he will consummate. And what Jesus fulfilled in his first coming, he will bring in its fullness in the second coming. And so we have everlasting righteousness now. That is mine in Christ, a righteousness given to me in Christ. It is mine now, and it can never be taken away. But at the second coming of Jesus, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Peter describes it as the home 
of everlasting righteousness. So this is what the 70 weeks are all about. Now, would you allow me to go four minutes more? Whether you allow me or not, I'm going to do it, so. (laughs) I want to leave you now. Um, I've tried to explain a difficult passage to you, and frankly, friends, we could probably have a two- or three-hour Q&A time on this passage, Uh, and that might actually be a fun thing to do. But I want to leave you now with some points to to ponder. And I want to leave you with some points. Those of you in life groups, these may be some things you want to discuss. But even in your own personal time and reflection today, I, I think Daniel 9 demands that we ponder these things. The first is this. This passage, while it has already been fulfilled, it's a prophecy of the past that has been fulfilled. The passage may also establish a pattern of future events that will foreshadow the end time. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's some confusing lines here. There are some lines that it's kind of hard to get away from. Like in verse 26, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Is, is Daniel just speaking about the end of the 70 weeks, the 70 years, or the end of Christ coming the first time? Or, or is he alluding to something even future? And desolations, it says, have been decreed. We see in this passage that the abomination of desolation was fulfilled when Titus went into the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD and raised it to the ground. But there is a sense in which Titus and Antiochus before him are actually a picture of what the Apostle Paul says is going to happen in the end time. And I direct your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he refers to the man of lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness will be destroyed. So I'm suggesting here that there could be a pattern in this, in this passage about future events that are coming. Secondly, I don't want you to get hung up on the pieces of the puzzle that are in this passage. Uh, I'm sure some of you are going to want to come to me right after the message today. And you're going to want to ask me this and ask me that. Um, I'd love to chat, but um, don't, get, don't get mixed up. Don't get confused by the pieces of the puzzle and miss what is really being said here, and that is the clear proclamation of God's grace and rest and rescue. Do you see that in the passage? I mean, God, you know, Daniel's in Babylon, and he's given the plan. It's amazing. God's got everything in control, which is number three. God is in charge and that should give us hope. Daniel must have struggled when he had all these visions and had all these explanations given to him. And we struggle too with trying to figure out things. But God had a plan to rescue his people. And friends, he has a plan for us as well and for the end of this age. Number four, a decreed end is coming. We have a decreed end here in Daniel 9, but there is a decreed end coming for the world. God has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man he has chosen. And he has given proof of this in that he raised him from the dead.
and the resurrected Messiah who was cut off, who made a covenant for us with his people, that resurrected Messiah will return in power and in glory, and he will bring the evil of this world to an end, and we will enter into a new heaven and new earth because the decreed end that is coming is actually a new beginning. Please stand. Lord, thank you for this incredible passage in your word. So much puzzles us in it, but Lord, help us to nurture our souls in the grace that is given to us in Christ and in the rescue plan that you devised for us, your people. We give you praise now in Jesus' name. And now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will and work in all of us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen.